Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Good morning, everyone, those of you who are here and those watching from home. And uh, I just want to echo what um, our brother Keith uh, said. Happy Mother's Day uh, to all the mothers, uh, our mothers and our spiritual mothers, those who have invested in us. Uh, We want to thank God for you. We want to honor you uh, this day. Well, I must begin this morning by sharing uh, with you some very difficult uh, news. Our neighbor was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and, uh, and she is palliative. Those of you who were in my prayer group this past Thursday or the Thursday before, you, um, you remember Naroshi and I, we mentioned her to pray for her. Um, we had the opportunity to visit her last week with John to uh, cheer her up and, to, um, and, and even to pray with her and her family. They come from a, a Catholic background, so we were able to pray with them. But, uh, but this past Wednesday morning, as I was um, in my room, I was preparing this, this sermon from my desk. As I looked out the window, I could see two ambulances and two police cars parked on our street just in front of their house. And so, of course, I assumed that she had uh, passed away. But uh, much to our shock and to our sadness, it was not her but her husband, who had, um, who had died in the night, unexpectedly. And so from my window, I watched as these children and grandchildren were gathering outside the home and just weeping. And so, I, of course, I paused my sermon preparation. I went downstairs, and Naroshi and I, we, we prayed, and we, um, we wrote a card. We uh, ordered some flowers, and then we... We went outside. They were, they were on their driveway outside, and so we went to speak with them. But what do you say to people who have experienced such pain, such loss, such tragedy? What do you say to them? Well, we, we said what we could. We, we, we tried to offer some words of comfort. They were grieving. It's not a time to preach at people. We, we just offered the words of comfort we could. And then we returned home. And as I came back to my desk and I, and, I, and I started to resume preparing this sermon, the significance of this passage that was just read to us just struck me anew. It just struck me. For what can we really offer to a world that is dying all around us? What do we have to offer them? Flowers? Cards? Nothing, nothing apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, nothing else, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're looking at this morning, how the church in Colossae received the gospel. You know, we use that word gospel quite a lot in Christianity, don't we? Uh, And most of you, you know what it means. You know that the word gospel means good news. 
But what you may not know is how this word gospel was used um, by the Greek. How was it used in, in, in classical Greek language? Well, it was used to describe a messenger. I want you to picture this, this scene. There's a messenger who is returning from the front lines of a battlefield. Your country is at war. You're, you're just a civilian. You're in the town. And the messenger is running back from the battlefield with an announcement, with, with a message that, that we were at war. We were going to die. We were going to be slaves to the enemy. But I have good news. We have won the war. The war is won. The enemy has been defeated. And you and I are saved. That is the picture of the gospel. And friends, I come to you this morning like that messenger. And I've got a message that Jesus Christ has defeated the enemy of our souls. He has defeated our sin, and he's even defeated death itself. And this is not a message I came up with, even though I'm delivering it to you. It's not a message I came up with. It's, it's a message that I also received in accordance with the Scriptures, that Christ died for our sins. He died for our sins. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead to bring eternal life to us. Eternal life to us. To us who believe the message. Believe the message that came. Believe the gospel. So just like this messenger running back from the battlefield, I want you to keep this picture in your mind. Just like that, 2,000 years ago, a man by the name of Epaphras came running home. He, he had been to the city of Ephesus, and he had heard this, this message, this good news, the good news about Jesus from the Apostle Paul, one of the early leaders of the church, and this message utterly changed his life. It changed him. So that when he returned to his hometown, the city of Colossae, he could not help but announce the news to anyone and all the people who would listen, the good news, the message of Jesus. And well, before long, what happened? The news spread, as, as good news often does. The news spread and a, and a church was planted in that city. And as we learned last week in the introduction, in, in 62 AD, 62 AD, this Epaphras took the 1,000-plus-mile journey all the way to Rome to visit the apostle Paul. Paul was now in prison. He, he was awaiting his own death. And Epaphras came to visit him just to tell him about this little church in Colossae. And it's Paul's response, his letter. That's what we're studying in this series, in, in the series on Colossians. So with that context, I want you to remember a few things from last week's introduction, that Colossae was a small, um, unremarkable city. Okay, in the first century, it was, it was located along a river, if you can picture that, along the river, between two neighboring cities that were far more prosperous and far more important than Colossae, the cities of Laodicea and the city of Hierapolis. These cities were more important, and so Colossae was, Colossae was just was overlooked. They were overshadowed. 
But as we learned last week, God does not overlook those whom the world deems unimportant. The world might deem them unimportant, but God was doing something in and through this small church. And so we turn to our text this morning. Hopefully you're already there. And for those of you at home, please open your Bibles to Colossians 1, and we're in verses 3 to 8. And as you heard it read, Paul is giving thanks for the way the Colossians received the gospel. He's giving thanks for how they received it. And as we go through this, here's what I want to ask you to do. Remember that picture I told you, right, of a messenger returning from the battlefield. I want you to keep that picture in your mind, and I want you to consider yourself as though you are a civilian in the town, okay? And this messenger has come with this message that the war is won. And I want you to to ask yourself, how would I receive this good news? If that was the case, if that was the scenario, how would you receive the good news? How, and if you have received the good news, how have you received the gospel? How have you really received the gospel? So let's look at verse 3 as we begin. Paul starts by saying, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We always thank God. God. So this is where it all begins, church. Remember, we are civilians in the town. The messenger has come from the battlefield announcing this good news. But we are just civilians, which means what? Which means you and I didn't fight in the battle, did we? We were just in the town. We're just the recipients, the receivers of this news. So I want you to think about that for a moment. Do any of us deserve thanks when the war is won. You and I are civilians. Do any of us deserve thanks? Uh, sh- sh- should you and I be owed some sort of congratulations for defeating the enemy? No. For, for hearing and believing the message? No. Paul does not give thanks to, to, to Epaphras, who was the messenger, their pastor. He doesn't give thanks to the congregation, you and I, the recipients. Why? Because Paul knows, as well as you and I know, that we didn't do anything. There is nothing you and I can take credit for. We have no grounds to claim praise or glory for ourselves. And if you have truly received the gospel, you know this is true. Let me ask you some questions. Who defeated your sin at the cross and saved you? Who did that? Who overcame the death and the grave to give you eternal life? Who did that? Who granted you repentance? Who's the author of your faith? Who opened your eyes when you were blind to even see the gospel? Who moved the mountains of unbelief in your mind so that you could have hope, a hope worth trusting? Who did all of this? God did. God did. And so, whenever Paul prayed for the Colossians, he did not thank them. He did not thank their pastor. He, he gave thanks to the one to whom it is really due, to God. To God. And the question is, do you and I do the same? Should we not do the same? He continues in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Who is this God? Who is he? Paul says, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see this in the weeks to come as we go into this series, that the the 
focal point of Paul's whole letter, his main point, is Christ. Is, is the sufficiency of Christ alone. That's his focus. But here he begins by declaring to us and to the Colossians who Christ really is and who is he. He is the Son of God. He's a son of God, which means he is one in nature with God himself. Like a son shares the nature of their father, so Jesus shares his nature with God. But but, but he's not only, God is not only the father of Christ. I want you to look back at verse 2. Look back at verse 2 in your Bibles, and you're going to see this. If you look at verse 2, you'll see that Paul tells us, God is also someone else's father. It says, grace to you and peace from God, what? God, our father. Isn't that incredible? It's it's not just God, it's not just the father of Christ. He's also our father. Now, how can that be? Well, because, because we have been adopted into God's family. Just let that sink in. We have been adopted. Through Jesus, we've been given this incredible privilege, this this undeserved right to call the God of the universe our Father. Our Father. Does that not encourage you? That He is your Father? And yet there is a condition, if you look at verse 3 again, there's a condition here, isn't there? To be adopted into God's family. Look at verse 3. Jesus, the Son of God, must be your what? He must be your? Your Lord. You see that? Your Lord. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord means He's the one to whom you submit. He is your ultimate authority above and beyond all powers and all rulers and all governments. Christ must be the one to whom we submit. Christ. So now I hope you're getting a picture of how the Colossians saw Jesus Christ, how they received him, how they received the gospel. Now, 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 now Paul goes into these three foundational responses, okay? And, and Paul does this in other places in the Bible as well. Three incredibly important virtues that every true Christian who has received the gospel, every true Christian possesses these three, every one of them. And I want you to remember, Paul is specifically thankful for these, but he's not thanking the Colossians for these things, right? In verse 3, he's thanking God, which means these qualities are not qualities that they produced on their own. These are gifts from God, these three, these virtues, faith, love, and hope. Three eternal characteristics, faith, love, and hope. And so as we examine each one of these, I want, I want you to be honest with yourself. Most of you here in this room are believers, and those watching from home, I'm sure most of you are, are believers. But can we ask ourselves, is this really true of us? These traits, can, can this really be said of you and I? Let's look at the first one, verse 4. Paul says, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Your faith. That word faith in the Greek, it's uh, pistis is, is the word. It means to be fully persuaded that something is true. That's what faith is. 
to be fully persuaded and convinced that something is true so that you can trust in it. And for the Colossians, if you look at this verse, what was the object of their faith? Look at the verse. Your faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus was the object. So so the Colossians were fully persuaded. They were fully convinced that Jesus was true. That he he is real. That that, that, that they, they could trust him. I want to bring up another verse on the screen, uh, Hebrews 11 and verse 1, just so you understand. This is how faith is defined, okay? So we all say we're believers. You say you have faith. Here's what faith is. Faith is defined as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, okay? The conviction of things not seen. That's what faith is. So faith in Christ means... That even though you can't see him with your eyes, you are really convinced, you are convicted that he is really here. He's here with us. Is that true for you? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's really here with us? That he's actually listening when you pray? That he's watching over you even when you think you are fully, completely alone? That he's present? Do you believe that? Because when we say we believe in Jesus, is this what we really mean? As you guys sit here in the pews, or those of you who are watching from home, watching this message, are you fully persuaded and convinced that the unseen Jesus Christ is present with you? He's alive. And that one day your eyes are going to see him for yourself. Do you really believe? Because that's what faith is. The conviction of things that are not seen. And the Colossians had such faith. Now, now you may be wondering, how did Epaphras know that they had faith? Right? It's a fair question because can you see someone's faith? Can you actually see it? No. I mean, faith is it's what you believe, right? It's in your heart. It's in your mind. So, so how did Epaphras How was he able to tell Paul that his congregation had faith? How did he know? Well, the answer comes again from that Greek word for faith. Um, Remember that word, pistis. It comes from the root word, patho, which actually means to obey. To obey. Because you see, faith and obedience are inseparable. They walk hand in hand. And Epaphras knew his congregation had faith because he saw it in their lives. He saw it in their obedience. Because do you realize that what you believe is inseparable from how you live? What you believe cannot be separated from how you live. It affects what you do. It affects your actions. It affects your works. It affects your obedience. And I want to illustrate this um, with an illustration that, that I, stu- I stumbled upon as I was preparing this message. Imagine you're on a boat, okay? You're on a boat, and you're... I don't know how I got on a boat. I hate... Anyways, um, <laughs> you're on a boat, and you're caught in severe rapids, and you're heading... Uh, headlong, and, and, and you've lost control of the boat, and you're heading to the, to the edge of a waterfall off of a high cliff, and if you don't get out, get out of this current, you are surely going to die. Okay, imagine that. That's the scenario. And you're in this boat, and now I want you to imagine that someone from the shore 
throws you a rope to rescue you. In this scenario, since I hate boats, I would probably be the one on the shore throwing you the rope. (laughs) But imagine someone threw you this rope to rescue you. If you really believed that this rope was your only way to be saved, if you really believed that, what would you do? Would you remain in the boat and, and, and look for some floating logs to jump on? No, you wouldn't do that. You would grab hold of that rope, wouldn't you? You would cling to it for dear life. You would put all of your hope and trust into that rope, trusting it to save you. Because you see, church, true faith in something leads you to firm action. You can't say you believe something and then not not. Live consistently. I can't say I love my wife and then not love her. It doesn't make sense. It's not true faith. It changes how you live, and so it was with the Colossians. Their obedience was proof to Epaphras and to Paul that they really believed Jesus was their only Savior. Faith. That's the first first virtue. The second one, look at verse 4. Paul moves to a second response, how the Colossians received the good news, love. Look at this. He says, since we heard of the love that you have for all the saints, love. Love, if you have received the good news of Jesus, this is what must follow. It must follow that you love believers. Jesus said the same, similar thing in, in John's gospel, chapter 13. I'll bring it up there for you just so you see it. Jesus said, you remember this passage, right? He said, a new commandment I give to you, he's speaking to his disciples, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's the standard. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people, the world, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for who? For one another. You, you, you know, I have to be honest, when I was earlier in my faith, I confused this verse, and, and maybe many of you have confused what Jesus is actually saying here. He's not saying that we are his disciples if we have love for all people. You see that? He's not saying that here. Uh, that's not what he's saying. There is a general love that we have for all people, right, as Christians, of course, We do. But what Jesus is saying here is there is a particular love that we owe to each other within the church. As as adopted children in God's family, there's a particular love we owe to each other. Galatians 6 verse 10 spells it out. Paul says, so then, as we have opportunity, look at this, let us do good to everyone, that's everyone, the world, And what? And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially. Because church, what happens is when when you become a Christian, there's something about becoming a Christian that causes you to lose your affinity to the world. You lose your connection to the world. The same connections you had change. And you gain this attraction for the church. You gain an attraction for the people of God. Why is that? I'm going to tell you why. Just follow the, follow the thinking. If Christ is the most important thing to you, 
Okay? If Christ is the most important thing to you, and if Christ means nothing to your friends, nothing, like, like, like he's just a curse word to your friends, how much do you really share in common with them anymore? How much do you share in common with them anymore? And so the Colossians loved all the saints. That's what, that's what Paul says. And I hope you uh, read that right because Paul doesn't say they loved some of the saints, does it? It doesn't say they only loved the believers they got along with. They only loved the ones that they bonded with or they related with over conversation or the ones who had similar interests as them. No. He says they loved all the saints, which means the young, the old, which means the rich and the poor, the Gentile and the Jew, the, the saints who were from Colossae, the ones who were from Hierapolis or from Laodicea or from Rome. It doesn't matter. If someone was in Christ, this church loved them. They loved them. And I think you know where the application follows. What about you and me? Do we love all our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we? Do you? Do we take time to get to know each other? Do we mourn with those who mourn? Do we, do we rejoice with those who are rejoicing? I'm not saying that we're all going to have the same emotional attachment to each other. That's not what I'm saying. But, but are we willing to serve one another in love? Are we willing to, to get down on your knees and wash the feet of another person in, in the faith as Jesus did, as Jesus did? Because the Colossians had this kind of love for all the saints, love. That's the second virtue. And the third virtue, look at verse 5. Here's the third virtue, the third response, the hallmark of those who have truly received the gospel. Here it is. It's hope. Okay? Faith, love, and now hope. Verse 5, look what Paul says. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Hope. So, we, I want you to read this whole passage carefully because he's saying that hope was the basis for their faith and love. Do, do you see that? Because he's starting verse 5 with the word because, which means that this reason he's about to give you is the reason for the preceding responses. So, so why did they have faith in Christ? Why did they love all the saints? Because of the hope they had laid up for them in heaven, which is the hope of spending eternity with God in glory. I just want you to, church, every time you come across eternal life, you need to learn to pause and just don't let the magnitude of this slip past you. You and I are going to spend eternity with God and with each other. Just think, if you don't like hanging out with me today, we need to get over it because we're going to spend eternity together. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that incredible? Just think, we are always going to know one another. We are always going to be with God. That expression, he says, the hope laid up, that word laid up in the Greek, it actually means to store something, to, to make a reservation. You know, you call a restaurant to make a reservation, to make a, that, that's what it means. So 
This is what the Colossians had. They had a hope that was reserved for them in heaven. It was reserved. It was a reservation that he made that could not be canceled. It's a reservation that couldn't be rebooked or kind of uh, stolen by someone else. It was stored securely in heaven and was waiting for them. It was waiting for them. I love the song that uh, Keith led us in earlier, the worship team led us. Um, Christ, our... our um, Sure and steady anchor, right? Our hope. It's a sure and steady, secure reservation in heaven. And Peter says, uh, bring it up, Andrew, if you don't mind. 1 Peter 1.4. Peter says it this way. It's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it's kept for you. Kept in heaven for you. So let me ask you, church, you're, you, you, you've received the gospel. Is this where your hope is stored? Is this where you have stored your hope? Is it laid up for you in heaven? Is it reserved there until you arrive? Or are you still putting your hope in temporary things of this earth? Things that you will not even take with you beyond the casket. This is not a small matter. I, I, I hope you don't mind me spending a bit of time here because where you put your hope determines how you face today. Okay, I, I, want, I, want, I want you to follow me in this, in this logic. If you have the hope of eternal life waiting for you, if that's the treasure you have waiting for you, such a reward reserved in heaven, it will change the way you face today. It'll change the way you face today. It's almost like, and I hate to make this so crude, but it's almost like you won the lottery and you have a billion dollars in your bank account and so today when someone steals a $20 bill from you, it changes the way you face today, doesn't it? If that $20 was the only thing in your bank account, fine. Right? It's a different story. But, but it's not. How would you worship God differently if, you're, if such a reward, such a treasure is waiting for you? How would you worship Him differently to get today with thanksgiving? How would you exercise your faith? How would you love each other and forgive all the slights and wrongs that we do to each other? How would you endure evil that's done against you? How would you face suffering with joy, wouldn't you? It's, the world doesn't get this. Face suffering with joy? Yeah. Making the most of the time you have on earth. Why? Because you know that the sufferings you face today are not even worth comparing to the glory, the glorious hope that awaits you. Where you put your hope determines how you live today. And if I could speak to my neighbors, the neighbors I shared with you, shared about at the beginning, if I could say something to them, I would say, the hope of eternal life is the comfort that Christians have even in the face of death. I couldn't say that to them today because they were, or the other day because because they were grieving and it wasn't, it wasn't the time. I had to just stand with them. We had to 
hold, hold, and Roshi held her hand and just be there. But if I could say something to my neighbors, I would say this. I would say the comfort that Christians have, even in the face of death, is eternal life. More than any flowers, more than any cards could ever bring comfort, this brings comfort. And it's why Christians would rather be mistreated. You know, you know some of my friends um, who, are, who are unbelievers, they don't understand why we would want to um, miss out on all the joys that life has on this earth. All the things that bring pleasure. They think that being a Christian means that you're, you're giving up all those things. No, no, no. Christians would rather be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. You know why? Because Christ is greater wealth than any treasure this world has. That's why. That's why. We see the world entirely different. And this hope, my friends, is not a wishy-washy hope. You know, some people say, you know, here's hoping. You know, that kind of hope where it's like, you know, something that may or may not happen, that kind of hope. That's not the hope we're talking about. This hope is not a hope that we imagined in ourselves. Some of my non-Christian friends think that's what religion is. <laughs> religion is just a bunch of people coming up with some theories so that they can pacify themselves when something bad happens. They have someone to blame and some, some reason to... But this hope is not something the Colossians came up with to overcome their pain over death. Look at verse 5. This is a hope that the Colossians heard in... Back to verse 5, uh, Andy. Um, this is a hope they heard of before in the word of truth. In the gospel. Right here. This was a hope that was founded on a basis. It was founded on the truth, the very word of God. So I want to tell you something. It mean, that means this hope that we have as Christians is as trustworthy as God himself. That's how trustworthy it is. Because it's based on his very words. Doesn't that encourage you? And this message of hope was not just for the Colossians. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, um, as it comes on the screen. Paul says, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Did you know at the time of uh, Paul writing this letter, the gospel had already spread? It spread from Jerusalem to Syria to, to Asia Minor to Greece to Italy to Egypt to Persia to North Africa and beyond. Why? Because, friends, the message of Christianity was not just for one ethnic or racial group. It wasn't. The message of Christianity transcends everything that divides humanity today. All the racial division that you're, you're, you're hearing about on the news, this message transcends all of that because it is good news for the whole world. It's good news for the whole world. And it wasn't just spreading. Look at this, verse 6. What does Paul say the gospel was doing? It was bearing fruit. You know, Jesus used um, a similar agricultural parable, didn't he, in his ministry? He said, 
to teach us what happens when God's Word is sown in your heart, in good soil. What, what happens? It produces fruit. It grows, right? It increases. It changes you. And so, folks, if you have truly received the gospel, this is what the gospel does. It saves your soul, and then it changes your life. It bears fruit. So many people think Christianity is just a dead list of rules. And some of you thought that too. Before you were saved, Christianity is just a system of ethics, right? It's just another worldview. But I'm here to tell you the gospel is the power of God to change human hearts. That's what it does. It changes. If you're an unbeliever or you're a skeptic and you're watching and you want proof, you want evidence that the gospel, for the gospel, see the fruit that it bears in the lives of those who have truly received it. See the, the way it changes them. It changed me. It changed me. And you can try to refute or you can try to deny the Bible all you want. People think it's foolishness. But one thing you can never deny is the change it causes in the lives of those who truly receive it. The change that it causes. And so it was with the church in Colossae. Now, I know some of you are going to object to this. And the reason you're objecting is valid. You will say to me, I've heard the gospel many, many times, um, but nothing's changed. If you, if you don't feel that way, maybe you know people who have, they've, they've heard the gospel many, many times, but nothing has changed. And it's true. And so Paul takes us a step further. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6, and he tells us what was so different about the Colossians. Look at verse 6. You heard it, and what? Understood the grace of God. They understood. What Paul is saying is that the Colossians didn't just hear the message and then go back to their lives. No. Since the day he preached the gospel in truth to them, they understood the grace of God, which means they got it. They, 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 they comprehended it. They understood. They knew it. Church, this is why right from the outset, Paul began by giving thanks to who? To God. Because God gave them understanding. He gave them understanding. And if you have heard the gospel many, many times, but you have not yet believed, my sincere question to you is this. Do you understand the grace of God? Do you understand it? Do you understand that we were sinners? We were doomed for death. We're sitting in this town, our country's at war, and we were losing. We were going to become slaves, or worse, we were going to die. That was our predicament before Jesus came and died for your sins to forgive you and then rose from the dead to give you eternal life. We didn't deserve any of this. This is what grace is. Grace is getting something you do not deserve. Do we understand that? This is the grace of God. I love the verse that um, uh, Brother Keith shared earlier. It is by grace you have been saved. It is the only, grace is the only means by which any of us can be saved. Grace. 
God's grace. And if you don't understand this, if you don't understand this, and many people do not, Paul tells us how God gave the Colossians understanding. Look at verse 7. How did God give the Colossians this understanding? Look at verse 7. He says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, the Colossians learned the gospel. They learned it, which means they understood the grace of God from their pastor, from Epaphras. God used this faithful church founder, Epaphras, to teach his congregation the gospel. And I had to pause here as I was preparing, and I just have to say thank you to our pastor. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you to, to thank God for pastors like him and, and faithful pastors around the world and throughout history who have not shied away from teaching people the gospel truth. Thank God for that church. Thank God for men like Epaphras. And not just teach them. You know, this is so interesting. I should have done Greek in, in a former life. I don't know. But that word learned, the word learned in verse 7. No, I, hate, I would hate that idea. Please don't. <laughs> I would, don't get me a Greek book for my birthday or something. Um, that word learned in verse 7, the Greek word there is manthano, which is closely related to another Greek word, mathetes, which means disciple. It means to disciple. So, so this is what Epaphras did. He didn't just give his church a gospel presentation, a nice PowerPoint, and then have an altar call and, and get them to come to the front, you know, say a prayer, and then go back to your old way of life. That's not what he did. He instructed them systematically in the Word of God. He helped them understand the grace of God. He taught them how to live as a disciple, as a follower of Christ. And I don't want you to overlook this because this is an incredible example for us, church. They, they received, the, this is how they received the gospel. This is a small church. They don't have the resources of the prosperous Laodicea or, uh, or, or Hierapolis. They don't have that. And yet, Paul is commending them for discipleship, for taking up the word of God and sharing it one to another. That's what they did. No fancy programs, just the word of God teaching and admonishing one another. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If you want to see gospel growth, if you really want to see gospel growth, and if you want to be involved in ministry, do not wait for a title. Don't wait for a title. Don't wait for a position to open up. Invest yourself in discipleship. Take the Bible. Find someone who, who wants to grow. Sit down with them and read and study Ask questions. Go deeper and see how God gives the growth. Paul concludes in verse 8, last verse. And he, speaking of Epaphras, has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Love. The greatest of the three virtues, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Right? And this is what their pastor noted about them. There's an application there. You know, if, if, if our pastor were to tell the apostle Paul something about our church, 
would he say this? That we love. We love God. We love each other. God's love has filled our hearts through the Holy Spirit in us. Would he say that? So as I close, um, these six verses, in these six verses, Paul has shown us how the Colossians received the gospel. And so I'm going to speak to two groups as I close. First, to those of you who have not yet believed this good news. You haven't believed the message. You've heard it maybe many, many times, time and time again. If that's you, I want to gently ask you this morning, have you understood the grace of God? Have you taken time to get it, to know it, to ask your questions, to pray and seek God to give you understanding? Because if you haven't done that, just like the Colossians who learned from their pastor, who were discipled by their pastor, we as a church would want nothing more than to do this with you, to spend time together reading, understanding the Word of God. Because we believe that if you repent of your sins and believe this message, the message that came from the messenger, that Jesus has defeated the grave, if you believe that, it will bear fruit in your life. Your hope will be reserved in heaven for eternity. Your life will change. So that's to the ones who don't believe the message yet. And to those of you who do believe the gospel, you've already received it, you already have faith, you have hope, you have love. To you, um, Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, these lovely graces, he's talking about faith, hope, and love. He says, these lovely graces should be so obvious in every believer, that's you guys, in every believer that it is spoken of and heard of even by those who have never seen us. That's how obvious it should be. Why, why does he say that? Because Paul is in prison. He has never met the Colossians. Everything we read this morning is based on the report of someone else. That's how obvious faith, hope, and love were in this congregation. Think about that. He goes on, uh, Spurgeon, these flowers, it's Mother's Day, right? You bought flowers for your mothers? Right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> these flowers should yield so sweet a perfume that their fragrance may be perceived by those who have never gazed on the flower. Can't even see the flower, but you can smell. You can perceive the fragrance. Faith, hope, and love. So it was with the saints at Colossae. Can that be said of us? Can that be said of us, church? So as I ask the worship team to come, uh, we're going to pray and close our time together. And just as Paul began in verse 3, I want us not to give thanks to our pastor, not to give thanks to, the, to one another, but we give thanks to God because God is the one who saved us. And let's ask him to help us to run and tell any and all who will listen this good news that we found. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for this morning. Thank you that we have um, embarked on this series in the book of Colossians. And as we begin, Father, we just see that all the glory and all the praise, all the thanksgiving is to be given to you. For you are the one who saves. You are the one who even gave us understanding. For those of us who believe, 
It's not because of our wisdom that we believe. It's because of your grace. So I, I pray that you would help us, oh God, as a congregation to, to humble ourselves, to turn our eyes to you. And for those who don't know you, that, that Lord, if they have heard this message a thousand times and they don't believe, Lord, I pray that you would grant them understanding and help us as a church to step up and to, and to invest that time to, to study and to learn the gospel because it is your power, it is the power of God to change hearts, to save us. We thank you, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.